From the JAMA Network, this is the JAMA Medical News Podcast. Discussing timely topics in clinical medicine, biomedical sciences, public health, and health policy featured in the medical news section of JAMA. Hi, I'm Becky Volker, Associate Managing Editor with JAMA Medical News. And welcome to our live stream here of all of our articles, or at least some of them, that we've published in the month of January. So we have three articles that we're going to talk about today. My associate, Jen Abbasi, is going to introduce herself, and Rita Rubin is with us too. And then we will get started. So I'm Jen Abbasi, and I'm a senior staff writer with JAMA Medical News. And I'm Rita Rubin, and I'm also a senior writer with JAMA Medical News. Great. So the first story we wanted to talk about is about uh, Alzheimer's research, and it's specifically about brain glucose metabolism. And this story was written by one of our freelance writers, Bridget Keene. So we've known for something like two decades that type 2 diabetes appears to increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease, in observational studies at least. And some scientists are starting to think that Alzheimer's might be its own sort of brain-specific type 3 diabetes, which is really interesting to think about. And on brain scans of Alzheimer's patients, there's often areas of reduced glucose metabolism. And researchers are starting to think that that might actually contribute to Alzheimer's disease. So there's more and more interest now in how impaired glucose metabolism in the brain could contribute to Alzheimer's. And several research teams presented on this at last year's uh, Society for Neuroscience annual meeting. And the idea is that brains that don't efficiently use or transport glucose to brain cells could be starved of energy, and that could somehow contribute to uh, cognitive impairment. Right. And it's really intriguing that some of the medications that are going to be tested to see if they may help patients with dementia or Alzheimer's are diabetes drugs, metformin and intranasal insulin and liraglutide. So that could provide some intriguing results and benefits for patients. This story also, it's another opportunity to mention the potential benefits of a healthy lifestyle, diet and exercise. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I thought it was really interesting because I think we've known for a while that the risk factors for Alzheimer's disease and the risk factors for cardiovascular disease are pretty similar. So who knows? There are many reasons, good reasons to try to eat healthfully and exercise. And so it's now another one that we need to think about and possibly protecting against dementia. That's right. One of the researchers that Bridget spoke with said that healthy lifestyle is more likely to make the brain more resilient to the effects of aging. So something to keep in mind, yet another reason to try to eat healthy and to exercise. Definitely. We're past lunchtime, but um, (laughs) we're going to keep that in mind. And so now we're going to move on to our second story in January, which was by another one of our freelance writers, Anita Slomsky. And this one is about women in testosterone use, specifically a new position statement that came out. And it was from 11 international professional groups, including the Endocrine Society, It's the first global recommendation that clarifies which women 
uh, will benefit from taking testosterone. And the conclusions were that it should be used only for postmenopausal women and only for hypoactive sexual desire disorder. Even though it's sometimes used off-label in high doses for hot flashes, depression, fatigue, and low mood, but the new statement says definitely those indications have insufficient evidence to support that use. And also the evidence is insufficient for potential musculoskeletal benefits also. So what the statement also indicates is that low-dose testosterone, just enough to increase a woman's levels to her premenopausal amounts, it will translate into about one additional satisfying sexual event per month. And one of the experts that Anita talked to said that even though that may not sound like a big difference, that it's really clinically relevant. So that's good news. And also that about 60% of women who use testosterone in this way will see a real improvement. There were some safety concerns, particularly for women with hormone-sensitive breast cancer and also possibly for cardiovascular disease. But overall, the safety profile appeared to be good. One of the other things that the statement points out is that there are no approved testosterone products for women, and they say the need is really substantial. There are dozens of products approved for men, but women have really been left out of this discussion. All right. And we should probably define what uh, hypoactive sexual desire disorder means. So that's a fancy way of saying Female sexual dysfunction defined as a persistent lack of sexual fantasies and desire for sex that causes distress to the woman or her intimate relationship. So that's the only indication that this guideline panel came up with for testosterone in women. I have to say this story kind of bothered me because as it points out, there are questions about how to even accurately diagnose hypoactive sexual desire disorder. So we're not even quite sure what the disorder is. And then physicians are also prescribing, in some cases, especially in the U.S., as the story points out, high doses of testosterone to women for, as Becky mentioned, a variety of symptoms that are associated with menopause. And so it's reminding me a little of the whole discussion about hormone replacement therapy before the Women's Health Initiative. And now there was a great drop off in women taking estrogen to deal with menopausal symptoms or symptoms that might not really be due to menopause. And I just can't help but be a little concerned that there are women who are being prescribed this drug who may not be helped and who may be at risk for longer-term issues, like an increased risk of breast cancer. We don't know that yet, but that's a problem. We don't know it yet. And I have to say, I like the male physician that Anita interviewed said she is not really into prescribing testosterone to postmenopausal women because it's like tampering with Mother Nature and kind of seems like that to me. I mean, it's one thing if you're a man, you have particular levels so there was some debate in the story. So she spoke to a lot of different experts, and there were people who she spoke with who disagreed 
with the recommendation to use testosterone in women with low sexual desire. But one person did counter those concerns by saying women actually do have testosterone. It maybe decreases, but it's not like we don't have it as we get older. But maybe we're not supposed to have the same levels. I mean, I'm just... I'm a little skeptical about the prescribing, especially in high doses. And then with the low doses, when you know, one physician said she prescribes one-tenth of the dose indicated for a man, I mean, it might not be hurting them because it's such a small dose, but it really might not be doing anything except possibly having a placebo effect. It's not an FDA-approved product, so there's no dosing instruction to know really what you should be taking. So at this point, it's all guesswork. And so it is valuable for the investigators or the authors of this statement to point out that there are no products available, that women really have been left out of this discussion. Yeah. Well, moving on to our third story here. This is one that Jen wrote. This went online this morning, and it's just in time for Super Bowl Sunday. This story is based on a JAMA neurology paper, and it looks at the association between concussion, erectile dysfunction, and low testosterone levels that NFL football players experienced later in life. Jen's going to tell us about it. Yeah. This study is part of the Football Players Health Study at Harvard, which is a study of former National Football League NFL players. And this study in particular had 3,409 participants. So again, these are retired NFL players. And so the researchers wanted to look to see if there was an association between concussions during their careers and erectile dysfunction later in life and they did find an association. So they accounted for things like the player's demographic characteristics, their current health, so once they were retired, what was their health status, uh, their football-related exposures, like what position they played, their body mass index at the time, and their self-reported performance-enhancing drug use. And even when they adjusted for all of those factors, compared with players in the lowest concussion symptom quartile, so let me explain that very quickly, they basically they sent the players questionnaires and asked them to self-report their concussion symptoms, and then they grouped them into quartiles of so four groups based on the number of symptoms they had that they self-reported. So those who were in the highest quartile, so those who reported the most concussion symptoms, had almost twice the odds of having erectile dysfunction indicators, and nearly two and a half times the odds of having low testosterone indicators currently. And there was a dose-response relationship. So the more concussion symptoms they reported, the more likely they were to have indicators of erectile dysfunction and low testosterone. And the potential mechanism is that concussion, so head hits, damaging the pituitary gland, which is the hormonal or a hormonal regulator, a major hormonal regulator in the body. So that could be the underlying mechanism that could be causing low testosterone and therefore erectile dysfunction in some of these players. It's interesting that all of the attention in concussion in sports has been directed towards CTE. This gives a whole other dimension to the repercussions of these continual hits during professional football games. Yeah. And the researchers are hoping that by getting this research out there, it can help to maybe reduce the stigma of erectile dysfunction. 
so that men who are experiencing the symptoms of erectile dysfunction can seek treatment because they can know that there's some sort of biological mechanism that's going on. There's a reason why they're experiencing these symptoms. And also they're hoping that physicians will be more willing to bring up the conversation and to ask men what's going on with their sex lives. You know, Jen, what I thought was interesting is looking at low testosterone and erectile dysfunction because maybe I'm wrong, but I I thought I've read that low testosterone explains only a small percentage of erectile dysfunction, that one of the big reasons that men have erectile dysfunction is atherosclerotic Mm -hmm. problems, blood flow problems. And so I I don't know. I know the lead author explained that it could be injury to the pituitary gland, which is responsible for downstream testosterone. But I just couldn't help but wonder, doesn't really explain a lot of erectile dysfunction, although maybe it does in these football players. I don't know. So the way they're framing it is that this is potentially yet another biological mechanism. So it's another potential contributor. And so I think a lot of people may know or some people may know that circulatory issues, heart health contribute to erectile dysfunction. I think it's much less known that head hits could potentially have a contribution as well. So it's just another potential factor, I think. As I mentioned, they did account for the player's current health status. Yeah. And there was still an association. It's an interesting paper and an interesting story that it generated that wraps up the stories we're talking about today. Thank you for joining us, and please tune in next time.